Hello, and welcome to the Kiskea Chapel Sermon Podcast. Kiskea Chapel is an international church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where we equip English-speaking believers to expand God's kingdom in our community and beyond. For more information about Kiskea Chapel, you can visit us on our website at kiskeachapel.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Ended because of somebody's famous surprise attack. Probably the most famous of those is this one, the Trojan horse. How many of you are familiar with the story of the Trojan horse? Okay, so some. Uh, the Trojan horse was first written about by a historian named Virgil, a Greek historian, ancient Greek historian, in his book, The Aeneid. But it was made famous through one of the most famous pieces of writing in all of human history by a man named Homer. He wrote a, an epic poem about the war between the Greeks and the Trojans, and it was famously called the Odyssey, the Odyssey. Uh, so even though he wasn't the first to tell it, he's the one that made it popular, and so for thousands of years now, people have used this image of the Trojan horse uh, to talk about other concepts, and let me tell you the baseline of the story there. Again, there's an all-out war between two massive nations in the Mediterranean, Greece and ancient Troy. The Greeks, after a 10-year failed campaign to try and take the walled city of Troy, pretended to surrender. They loaded up their ships, and it looked like they were headed back to Greece across the ocean. Actually, they just went out of sight. They left to the Trojans this gigantic replica of their city's icon. The icon was a horse. And so they created a gigantic wooden horse, rolled it up to the gates, told the Trojans, we surrender, we cannot take your city, we're leaving you this gift as a, a, a tribute to your strength and greatness. And then it appeared they left. But inside the horse were the greatest Greek warriors hidden. They rolled that Trojan horse inside the city of Troy and they waited while the Trojans partied all night, <laughs> went to sleep thinking we've finally won this long-term war. We, we sent the Greeks home. And while they tried to sleep off their drunkenness, out of the horse poured the Greek soldiers who opened the gates and allowed the entire Greek army to get inside this famous walled city of Troy. And they devastated everything, killed everyone, and burnt the city to the ground. So what looked like a gift, a Trojan horse, was really just a way of surprise attacking. It's really easy to get lulled to sleep, isn't it, in life? It's really easy to be unprepared and all of a sudden things catch you off guard. I can't even imagine what it was like a few days before the earthquake here in Port-au-Prince. People completely unprepared for what was just about to happen. Have you ever been unprepared? Uh, another great story, uh, this is an American story that 
Some people know uh, it used to be more famous in America, but it's another example of a surprise attack. Did you know that the American Revolution happened shortly before the Haitian Revolution? The American Revolution turned primarily on one battle called the Battle of Trenton. It looked for sure like George Washington had been destroyed. They had pushed the American revolutionaries out of the city of New York, out of New Jersey, out of the, the major city of Boston, across the Delaware River. And there, in the middle of winter, with ice and snow everywhere, George Washington's American revolutionaries licked their wounds and wondered what they'd do next. That's when George Washington came up with a pretty amazing plan. Even though the Delaware River was frozen over, on Christmas night, George Washington took his remaining troops, cracked the ice across the Delaware River, and got almost the entire American army that was left across the river on December 25th, 1776. A lot of paintings, that's one of the more famous paintings about Washington crossing the Delaware. He lost about a third of his men in that crossing. And they thought they were going to surprise attack the British and catch them off guard in the middle of the night, Christmas Day. Problem is, it took so long to get across the river. By the time they got to Trenton, New Jersey, where the uh, Hessian troops, they were fighting with the British, were found, uh, the sun came up, and he thought, darn it, we're too late. <laughs> we're going to get slaughtered. These are, the, at the time, the best military in the world. And Washington's men were a bunch of farmers. And then something fortuitous happened. The snow picked up. It was a whiteout. Nobody could see them entering the city of Trenton. And Washington and his soldiers came in and caught the Hessians, the British army, off guard. And they took almost the entire set of British soldiers. Almost a thousand of the 1,400 men were captured. Most of the others were killed. Only a few fled away. This changed everything in the American Revolution. The tide turned because of a surprise attack. They were unprepared. Of course they were unprepared. Who would think on Christmas evening <laughs> you'd get attacked? They were partying. <laughs> In fact, the rumor was that most of them were sleeping off their drunkenness when the Americans arrived. Completely unprepared. Well, this gets us, believe it or not, to 1 Peter chapter 3. There's so much. If you read 1 Peter chapter 3 this week, you know, I had a struggle. There's so many things that could be taught on. 1 Peter 3, even though it's a short letter, there's so much in there. I decided to land on verse 15 because in verse 15, Peter begins with the words, be prepared. Now, in America, we used to have a youth organization called the Boy Scouts. This was their motto. I know the Boy Scouts, I think they're called Nash here in Haiti. Uh, I don't know how big they are, but, but that was their motto. We're going to train young men to be prepared for whatever happens. 
Well, that's pretty much what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I'm only going to talk about just this one part of a verse because I think there's so much there. Here's what Peter says. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. The word there, to give a reason, in Greek, the word is apologian. And it's basically the word that would have meant like a defense attorney's closing arguments, where they summarize everything. We would call that an apology, uh, based on the Greek word apologian. And Peter's saying, you as a follower of Jesus, as an exile, one of the elect on earth here, you need to be prepared to give your summary statement like a lawyer to anybody who asks you about the hope that is in you. So this morning, I'm going to just ask a very, very simple question. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to give a reason when somebody asks you, why do you hope in Jesus? Peter says it's our job. Now, before I go on to talk about the specifics here, I, I want to put it in context. Those of you who've been following the wrong and reading in 1 Peter, you know that chapter 2 and chapter 3, Peter's talking about what it's like. We started out, remember, Peter calls us elect exiles. And he said, you're exiles in this land. Now, let me tell you how you ought to live as exiles during your time here on earth. And he says, you ought to live lives that cause people to ask why. You ought to live lives that are so different that the people of this world go, why do you do that? Why do you live that way? Jesus called it denying yourself and taking up your cross. Well, Peter, if you've been reading, you know he says, here's how you ought to be different than the surrounding culture. This is something that's very different, certainly, than America. I'm guessing more uh, different here in Haiti, even. Peter says the way as an exile you ought to be different is two words. The first word he tells us is submission. We hate that word. The world hates that idea of submission, any kind of submission. He said, no, I'm my own person. I stand up for myself. I will submit to no one. We make movies about people who will not submit. We got people in the streets throwing rocks and burning tires because they're saying, we will not submit. Peter says, if you're in exile, here's how you're going to be different than the world around you. You will submit. Let me, let me read to you some of the ways Peter says this. Just right before this verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. Did you hear that? All human authority whether they're good or whether they're evil. By the way, he wrote this at a time when the Roman Empire was led by a Caesar who was profoundly evil. Profoundly evil. And yet Peter says, here's how you're different than the world. If you want to live as an exile and an elect, you submit to all authority, whether the king is head of state or the officials he has appointed. Ouch! 
These are not my words. These are Peter's words. So you want to live as a follower of Jesus? Submit to all authority, even the ones you hate. Can you imagine how that would change things here in Haiti today? If Christians actually said, no, 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 we, we, don't, we don't do that. Even if we totally disagree with the president or the prime minister or whoever, we know that Jesus has called us to submit to all authorities. Now, there are times, the Bible is very clear, there are times when human authorities overstep their bounds and they ask us to violate God's law. And it says, no, that's the time when Daniel stands up. When they say, Paul, you have to stop telling people about Jesus and we'll let you out of jail, Paul says, no. If you let us out of jail, we're going to keep telling people about Jesus because there is a higher law than the human king. But Peter's here saying, as best as you can, live lives of submission to all authority. Ouch, we don't like that. Look at the second one, 1 Peter 2.18. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. Now, I, I just taught a class on Saturdays for a couple of weeks on the Bible and slavery. It couldn't be more clear. God stands clearly against slavery. And yet Peter says, if you find yourself in that situation while you're in exile here on earth, Submit to your masters with all respect. Ouch. Oh, no. Think you'd stick out? Uh, obviously, we live here in a nation that overthrew slavery. Thank God. But let's just plug in another word there. Hey, everyone, submit to your boss. whether he's a good boss or a bad boss. Here's how you live as exiles. You're different than other people. And they go, why do you do that? Why do you do that? Look at the third one, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now, is God saying women are inferior to men? Clearly not. The Bible is filled. Jesus himself, nobody went against the grain concerning women more than Jesus. He's not saying women should be inferior. He's saying women, if you find yourself in a situation where you're being oppressed by your husband, submit. This is how you live a life of difference while you're in exile here on earth, and people will say to you, why do you do that? Why do you live that way? Now, again, I want to say, these are not my words. <laughs> these are what in America we call politically incorrect things. Submit to evil kings? Submit to slave masters? Submit to oppressive husbands? What? That's crazy. But that's what Peter says will make us different than the world around us. That's the first thing. The second thing he says is suffering. We don't like that word either. 
But Peter says, if you're going to live as an exile, you, you, better get, you better get comfortable with that word because you're going to suffer. Jesus at one point, do you, do you remember in John, he's talking to the disciples shortly before his crucifixion, and I'm paraphrasing this, but one of the things he says to them is, guys, if you think they hate me, wait till you see what they're going to do to you. <laughs> wow. They're like, what? Well, What's he saying? And then they watched Jesus be crucified. Did you know that quite a few of the disciples, maybe as many as six of them were also crucified? Peter begged and pleaded that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord. Andrew more than likely was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Again, because he said, I, I shouldn't be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was. Suffering is the second thing that distinguishes us from the world around. In fact, Peter goes on to say, again, something about suffering. First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 19 through 20. He says, for it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. By the way, in America, we had a great example of this. Uh, one of the great men in American history was Dr. Martin Luther King. Because he said, we're going to take this seriously. We will suffer. But we'll suffer unjustly. And the way we do it will cause people to say, why, why are you doing that? Today we have people in America who are rioting because of unjust things instead of saying, no, 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 we'll accept and receive the suffering. Same thing's true here in this country. People are okay with suffering, but not unjust suffering. But Peter says, no, no, if you're in exile, if you're one of the elect that's exiled on this earth, while you're here, you will suffer unjustly, and you'll bear it up. That's how the world will know that you're different. They'll go, why, why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you live that way? Now look at this. The next verse I want to look at. Peter says, in light of these things, Again, in light of these things, if you'll live lives of, like exiles, submitting to all authorities, even evil ones, and suffering, even if it's unjust, the world will ask you why. Do you know why people aren't asking Christians about their faith? Because we're not willing to do this stuff. We don't submit. We don't suffer unjustly. So they don't go, why do you do that? They ignore. They go, oh, okay. Exiles are only unique when they live out this life of submission and suffering as they follow their Lord. Peter, in fact, says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 23, he says, this is what Jesus did. He set an example for you. He submitted to evil authorities, Caesar and even the corrupt leaders 
of the Jewish nation. And he suffered unjustly, 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails, crucifixion as a criminal, being made fun of. He didn't fight back. Peter says, we need to follow his example. And if we do, our neighbors will ask us, why? Why do you do that? Why don't you fight back? Why don't you stand up? Peter says, then, 1 Peter chapter 3.15 kicks in. When people ask us why we have this hope in Jesus, Peter says, now, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Again, let me ask you, does your life cause your neighbor to ask you why? Well, you live just like everybody else. They go, oh, you're a Christian, great. I like knitting, or I'm a painter, or I like reading books. They just see it as one of your preferences. The world is not going to ask why until we live different lives. And then they'll say, why? Why do you do this? That's when we need to be prepared to give them an answer. That's when it makes a difference. Again, does your life cause your neighbor to ask why? Our submission, our suffering, is what causes people to say, why? Why do you have hope? <clears throat> I, I want to use an analogy here. Let's assume here that you were falsely accused of a murder. Somebody falsely accused you and it went to trial. Let me ask you a question. Would you just say, well, here's my whole defense. I didn't do it. Would that be the defense you'd put forward? I didn't do it. Do you, you think that would convince anybody? <laughs> no. More than likely, you'd hire a legal advocate who'd come in and he'd say, I'm going to present reasons, evidence that proves you didn't commit this murder. And the more evidence you've got, the more they'll believe you when you say, I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. But if you don't provide any evidence, my guess is you go to jail, even if you didn't do it. Testimony, your testimony about how Jesus saved you, it's important, but it will not cause people in and of itself to go like, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you have hope in Jesus? You say, well, because I do. I have faith. Do you know what your neighbor will do? He'll go, Huh, wow, weird. They need you to go, give me some reasons why you have hope in Jesus. And that requires an advocate. Now maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're going, well, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, I can't, I can't argue my case. I beg to differ with you. Jesus told the disciples shortly before his crucifixion that he was going to send them a lawyer he called him the advocate. First century, that was a legal term for the lawyer. 
I'm going to send you an advocate, the Holy Spirit. He'll come in my name and he'll teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. See, here's the thing. When Peter says you need to have a reason for the hope that is within you, and you go, I don't know if I can do that. Jesus says to the disciples, he says, yeah, you can. I'm going to send you a legal advocate. He's going to give you all the evidence. Don't worry about it. He'll lead you into all truth. Because ultimately, it's not our arguments. It's the Holy Spirit, our advocate, that convinces people to follow Jesus. He will lead you in presenting the reasons for the hope that is in you. But as a witness, you still got to be prepared. Here's what Peter Kreft, a great Catholic philosopher, has to say about this. Kreft says, arguments may not bring you to faith, but they can certainly keep you away from faith. Therefore, we must join the battle of arguments. Okay, nobody gets argued into the kingdom of God. We can't present all this evidence and, and our neighbor's going to go, oh, okay, I, I believe in Jesus now. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I'm sorry to tell you, you don't have the persuasive power to do that, but you do have the power to give an apology, a defense, an apologian, a reason for the hope that is within you. Every one of us is an apologist. The question is, are you a good one? Or are you unprepared? Many people are unprepared, so they run into somebody who wants to ask questions. So why do you believe in Jesus? Are you prepared to give an answer at that point? That's the question. The early church certainly worked on this. I, I could go on for a long time, but let me just give you a couple of quick passages here. It says the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 that he went and he reasoned with the Greek philosophers. In Acts 26, he tells uh, the Roman authorities, I believe in Jesus because this stuff is true and reasonable. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, we demolish every argument. We're prepared. We know what to say to every argument. Philippians chapter 1, he calls it, I am defending and confirming the gospel. Every exile, every elect follower of Jesus is called to make a defense. We are called to have an idea what's going on. Here are eight of the biggest questions. Uh, I can't solve this this morning because this would be a very long class. But, you know, the questions your neighbor's going to ask you about Jesus, they really kind of come often. These, there are a few more, and there are different versions of these. But these are the basic eight questions that most people ask. Is God real, or is he just a crutch? Can't I just be a good person? Isn't sincerity enough? Does it really matter what religion I follow as long as I'm sincere? How can I reconcile miracles in the Bible with science? If God is good, why does he allow evil and suffering in the world? Is Jesus the only way? What about other religions? Are you telling me God's going to send somebody to hell because they were born in India? How can a loving God send people to hell? 
What about those who have never heard? And is the Bible a reliable document? I mean, it's really old. Can, can we really trust this? There's a lot of reasons that we have to learn and be prepared to give if we're going to do what 1 Peter 3.15 says here. When people ask us why, we, we're prepared. We have reasons to give them for the hope that is in us. Again, I, I can't do that equipping this morning. We don't have enough time, but I'll put this up at the end of the service too if you're interested. This is uh, one of the best books I know to help people get prepared to give a reason for their faith. Uh, he's actually a philosophy professor. He's one of those guys that you quickly realize is much smarter than you are. But he can equip you. And there are many other things like this. But uh, the reason I put this one up is if you go to that website, the book's online for free. You can just read it online or on your phone, whatever. It's called Evidence Unseen. There are many other things you can do, and some of you know those things. I'm not saying, oh, we should subscribe to this or that. I'm saying you should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that was in you. Questions and doubts overwhelm people. They don't come to faith because you proved something like the Bible's reliable. They don't go, okay, now that I know it's reliable, I'll follow Jesus. But for many people, those questions become a roadblock to faith. Let, let me indulge me for a minute. Let me tell you about my own faith journey, how I came to know Jesus Christ. I grew up in a very healthy family, an affluent family. We thought we were definitely better than everyone else. <laughs> In fact, if somebody asked me, well, so what's the sin you repented of? I go, it's the worst of all. It's the one highlighted in scripture above everything else. Pride, arrogance. I was an arrogant, arrogant young man. I think I'm still an arrogant old man, even though I pray that I'm getting better. <laughs> At least I know now that I have no reason to be arrogant. I still am, and I wish that weren't true. But my issue was arrogance. I had not been to church. I had no exposure to Jesus other than weird stuff, you know. Every once in a while, I'd spend the night with a friend who was Catholic, and I'd have to go to Mass with him, and they'd set stuff on fire and swinging around. There'd be smoke and guys with costume hats. I didn't understand any of it. I just thought... Wow, I don't want any of that. I'm not interested in any of that. I didn't even listen. I have no idea what they were saying. So when I turned 16, <laughs> I had a, a really close friend named Eddie Fisher. Eddie was everybody's friend. He's a wonderful guy, but he wasn't the smartest guy around. <laughs> So maybe I took some comfort in that, I'll take care of Eddie, I'm smart, I'll take care of him. So he called me one day and he says, hey, come on over to my house. He's right down the street from me. Uh, we're having a Bible study with this guy named Bob. And I thought to myself, oh no, a cult has Eddie. I gotta go save him. So I said, I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> 
I got on my little bicycle, didn't have a car yet, so I got on my little bicycle, ran down the street, went to this Bible study, and I was loaded, man. I was going to lay into this guy that was telling him about Jesus, but I got creamed. Now, this man that led me to Jesus, his name was Bob, he wasn't a great intellectual, but he did the worst thing anybody could ever do. He didn't argue with me. He said, here, let's read Jesus. Tell me what you think. And he let me just hang myself. <laughs> I read Jesus. I kept coming back weeks and weeks, reading Jesus and going, I don't know what to say. If he would have talked about Christianity, I could have easily gone like, yeah, I'm not interested in that. But he kept exposing me to Jesus, and I kept going, darn it. I can't find the holes here in Jesus. And that's when I began my faith journey for about a year there in high school. I was trying to decide, so is, is this what I believe or not? Now, it was Jesus that attracted me and Jesus that was compelling me to make a decision. But I had all kinds of intellectual questions. They weren't real, honestly. I didn't really care. <laughs> But I pretended these were the issue. Well, what about people who've never heard about Jesus? What's going to happen to them? I didn't really care about people who'd never heard about Jesus. I was a rich kid. Not my problem. Tough luck for them. <laughs> but I ran into some people who were 1 Peter 3.15 people. They knew how to give a reason for the hope that was in them. Most of them were three or four years older than me. And I'd go to these seminars that they'd teach, and they'd answer some of these questions. I don't think I really wanted an answer to the questions. I was just looking for an out, right? How can I write off Jesus? Well, I've got these reasons that I should. And they kept knocking those reasons down. I think of Bob Belts, a man named Richard Beach, a man named Jeff Kirby, a man named Mark Kaler. These guys, they were 1 Peter 3.15 people. They were prepared to give a reason for the hope that was in them. And it devastated me. I couldn't come up with any more reasons to keep Jesus at arm's length. Somewhere in that year, I finally said, okay, I give up. <laughs> Jesus, come into my life. Become my savior and become the Lord of my life. And again, there are lots of ups and downs I've been through after that. But I'm only telling you that because I, I want you to know that if I had not run into some 1 Peter 3.15 people, I don't think I'd be a follower of Jesus today. I really don't. I would have used those intellectual excuses to keep Jesus at arm's length. Thank God, not only those young men but I also, they gave me some amazing books. I read a guy named A.W. Tozer, a man from England named John Stott, a guy named Josh McDowell, and an English professor named C.S. Lewis. And they began to articulate a lot of the reasons for the hope that is within them, and I found myself overwhelmed. Okay, Jesus, what now? I had no idea where that was going to take me. Sometime during the summer of 1974, 
My obstacles had been smashed. And I decided, okay, so Jesus is the Savior. He is my Lord. Thank God for people who were prepared to give a reason for the hope that was in them. Are you prepared? I know it's simple, but this morning I just want to pose Peter's question to you. Are you prepared? Are you going to be like the Trojans? Somebody's going to push that horse while you're asleep and catch you off guard. Are you prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you? I'm going to pray, and as we're praying, I want you to honestly answer that question before God. His word, 1 Peter 3.15, says, get prepared. You need to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And I'm going to ask that you pray with me and you say, God, am I prepared? Have I prepared myself for this? Am I living the kind of life that causes people to ask why? And when they ask why, do I have reasons to give? I know it's your Holy Spirit, but am I prepared? Let's pray. Father, help us. We, we so quickly fall asleep like the Trojans, like the British Army on Christmas Day, unprepared. And all of a sudden, the opportunity to tell somebody about the hope that is in us goes away. Help me, Lord. I want to be prepared. Every day, I want to get more prepared for those moments that I cannot predict when somebody asks me why. Why do you care about Jesus? Lord, I know only you, only you can bring someone to the feet of Jesus. But I can remove some of those obstacles. And so can people here. I pray, Father, that you'll help them think through the questions that their neighbors, their friends, their family have and help them come with preparedness to reasons to respond to those answers. We ask that in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Stand and let's sing. We hope this message was helpful for you. If you're in Haiti, join us on Sunday mornings where English speakers from all backgrounds, missionaries, diplomats, Haitians, expats, come together to worship, to connect, and to have fellowship with one another. You can find more information about our location, our service times, and our Sunday school program for all ages at our website at kiskeachapel.org. Or shoot us an email at chapelq at gmail.com. That's chapelq at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.